Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. Following the following journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is episode twenty-six of Poor Three Sixty. I'm going to you live from my office in my home. Following up after a long holiday weekend that's brought to you by the 4th of July. Yes, the 4th of July is the topic for this week's show because it's the most recent event that happens and it's obviously it's kind of fresh in everyone's mind. There's still people even today setting off fireworks. Well, Sunday as you're listening. Uh, Tuesday as you're listening to this, Sunday as I'm recording it. But yeah, over the weekends we'll send a light off. It's not just a shoot a day to celebrate on just Thursday or as that. And we also saw... Um, before I really get into the episode, I, before I kind of forget, um, I want to uh, just uh, give good wishes to the people of California who experienced a lot of major earthquakes this past, basically since 4th of July, they've had some major stuff in that, uh, especially that one area um, where they had the, kind of near the epicenter that had some pretty major uh, activity and a lot of stuff falling down, a lot of damage, and I'm hoping... All the people there were, uh, were able to recover well, and there were, there were no major injuries resulting from that. So, um, yeah, I just want to offer uh, my sincere hope that everything goes smoothly for them moving forward. But yeah, so this uh, this episode was obviously, like I said, on the 4th of July. It's been uh, kind of a crazy 4th of July on my end. Actually, um, right now we're kind of in the middle of a bathroom remodel. We started it um, last weekend. Um, two weekends or the weekend before the 4th of July, uh, we started uh, work on it, demoed some of it, and I was demoing some stuff on 4th of July in the morning, uh, taking the toilet out, and it was giving me some trouble, and then kind of out of nowhere, it cracked and kind of split apart, and uh, a piece of it uh, cut my hand pretty good, and I had to actually go to the emergency room and get stitches, which is never fun, but I'm all stitched up, it's going to heal fine, I'm going to get the stitches off before I leave for Africa, so... Everything is going pretty smoothly there. It's just kind of awkward to have the stitches on my hand and have to wear a bandage over it and stuff. But I'm safe. I'm happy I didn't bleed a lot. So always good. Always good. Thankfully, even with it being the 4th of July, uh, ER and all that was very smooth. I was in and out in an hour, which it's not something a lot of people can say. And at least I was there before. I'm assuming a lot of the chaos of uh, people getting burns and... Uh, injuries resulting from drunk shenanigans on 4th of July or firework-related incidents. So, yeah, so that was kind of my my crazy Thursday. And the rest of the weekend was just uh, some more bathroom remodel. We uh, got some flooring put in and put in some leveling cement in before the shower pan, got some of the ceiling put in with the light. So it's it's coming together and trying to get a good chunk of it done before we leave so things move uh, smoothly once you return, so we'll be gone for a bit, and I'm actually going to be kind of backlogging some episodes, so you're not going to get uh, any really new insights on that end just because they're going to be recorded in advance, but hoping to bring you some good content that'll make it worthwhile for you guys to listen to, so those will probably come later this week. So if you have Patreon, you can check out those episodes early as soon as they get uploaded, and yeah, 
that's uh, more reason to get involved. Do two episodes ahead on Poor 360 before I return, and then um, might go a little international news when I come back just to share some of my experience. I'm sure adulting will be that way as well since we're recording uh, an adulting episode early. So I also have that uh, another week early too. So things are definitely moving right along there. But I know a lot of you are saying um, one of the biggest, funniest things that kind of came out of 4th of July was regarding a uh, slip of the tongue that uh, our president had said during his speech on his highly, um, not publicized, but highly talked up um, 4th of July celebration did in Washington, which is the first time since Truman that a president has done something on the National Mall for 4th of July. And the only reason Truman did it was because it's on the 175th anniversary of um, of the United States, so it seemed kind of fitting then. This was more of a of a um, little bit political, a little bit posturing. But um, from what I've read, and I'll I have some articles to share. I know it wasn't as political as a lot of people were thinking it was going to be. It was still very much a celebration of America, but it did skew praise the military and a lot of um, Republican talking points. And I'm not saying that praise the military makes you a Republican. I definitely praise our military. I think it's they do a great job and they do things that I can't do. <laughs> to be totally honest, um, yeah, it definitely deserve to be praised and definitely deserve to be taken care of, both abroad and once they return home. For those who do return home, and condolences to those who don't, who lose their lives fighting for us and our country and wars that are are justified and necessary. But, um, like I said, so the Trump had this big 4th of July spectacle, and there was definitely um, issues leading up to it regarding the fact that um, he was trying to make it VIP, and the closest seats to the president um, were given only to RNC members or high-level p- people in the Republican Party and cabinet members, all of that, and not really given to the Democratic candidates. And I don't know of any that actually did attend. Uh, I might have some of the info I have here, but I'm kind of a little fuzzy on that. Um, before I get into it, I know Nate will probably talk about it on JSC. Um, I did want to kind of break down some quick box office numbers. I kind of pulled it up because I did see two movies over 4th of July week, and I saw Midsommar, which is Ari Aster's follow-up film to Hereditary. Hereditary was one of that, that kind of out-of-nowhere... Um, kind of crazy, unsettling horror film that caught attention and caught some awards buzz and did really well for itself. And this is his follow-up, which I think is a, a much better film, and it's a lot more unnerving. I wouldn't call it scary, per se, but it's very unsettling to sit there and watch the movie. And the fact that it's there's relatively no darkness in that movie, like a lot of horror movies you see nowadays, it makes it that much more... Uh, I, don't, I don't want to say unsettling, but very kind of disturbing and creepy, and yeah, it just puts you... Off. And, I mean, there's a little bit of grotesqueness, and that's something that I think Ari Aster, who's the director, has been known for with Hereditary now with uh, with Midsommar. And, yeah, definitely uh, worth that. But I also saw uh, Spider-Man Far From Home, which is having a pretty good holiday weekend, all things considered. So, i run down. This is from uh, Entertainment Weekly. Um, the box office, Spidey Sense are tingling. The Peter Tingle, so to speak. Uh, so the Spider-Man Far From catches a sizable box office crown in its web over its sixth day, 4th of July release. Since debut Tuesday night, the film has ranked an estimated $185 million across 4, sorry, 4,634 theaters. 
Its total for the weekend is 93.6 million year record for the 4th of July weekend coming in just behind 2011's Transformers Dark of the Moon. I I still, I don't think I've seen that movie. I don't know. I don't think I've seen anyone past, uh, uh, what was his name? Shia LaBeouf. Um, so Dark of the Moon had a 97.9 million, so just a few million off. However, it does mark the biggest six-day 4th of July opening of all time, beating another web-slinging title, Spider-Man 2, for the title. That's exciting. So, one Spider-Man 2 to another. Breaking records. Uh, second and third place to the two photos go to with Disney and Pixar's Toy Story 4, which holds steady in second place that has made $34.3 million across 4,540 theaters. Toy Story 4 now boasts a global total of $650 million to date. Musical Beatles Fantasy Yesterday takes third place and has made $10.8 million across 2,614 theaters. It's a solid hold for yesterday in its second week, declined by only a minimal 37% from its opening weekend. Do still want to see Yesterday, and I'm planning to see Toy Story 4. And it, uh, actually, on the day this drops, I'll be seeing it. Definitely a good weekend to have a Disney film, though, because Disney Pixar, Disney, um, and Sony, I guess, are kind of two-handing this. I don't know how they're getting the profits from that. I'm assuming it's... Majority chunk goes to Sony, but Disney still gets a probably a sizable chunk. Uh, Spider-Man Far From Home is a triumph at both the global and domestic box office, marking the best six-day opening for a Sony film in history. The film is a follow-up to 2017 Spider-Man Homecoming and features Tom Holland returning as the earnest Peter Parker, a.k.a. your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, as well as Zendaya reprising her role as love interest MJ. The film picks up the events of the Springs Avengers Endgame as Peter Parker attempts to adjust to life post-snap. Without Iron Man and several other trusted Avengers, it's the final entry in Phase 3 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It also features John Favreau, Samuel Jackson, Michael Keaton. It does not feature Michael Keaton. I don't know why that's in there. That is incorrect. I saw the movie. It's not in there. Marissa Tomei, Jake Gyllenhaal, Martin Starr, Michael Mondo, and Colby Smulders. John Watts returns to direct the follow-up of his 2017 Spidey film. So yeah, uh, Michael Keaton is not in there. Not in the slightest. The partnership between Sony and Disney-owned Marvel marked a major boost for a listless summer box office coming ahead of expectation. Easily swings past 2017 Spider-Man Homecoming 3D opening of $117 million, combining its international debut of $395 million with its domestic earnings. Legends of Spider-Man film boasts a global total of $580 million. With the added bonus of a six-day opening scheme, the film marks the highest debut for any Spider-Man film ever. Thankfully, to keep netting high totals over the coming weeks, given extremely positive reviews and a sterling A cinema score. The long holiday weekend's other new release also exceeded expectations. A24's Midsommar, another title from Laude to Redditary director Ari Aster, takes sixth place with an estimated $6.7 million across 2,707 theaters for a weekend total, a weekend and a total of $10.9 million in ticket sales since its Wednesday debut. Counting the full five days, A24 said it marks the best debut for an indie film in 2019. Yes, indie film, but still definitely worth seeing. Um, Quick Snox Horflick follows a group of vacationers whose Swedish holiday takes a sinister turn when villagers invite them to join in traditional solstice festivities that are increasingly disturbing and bizarre. Will Poulter, who you'll recently know, he was the kid from, um, that, oh, like, Meet the Something movie that had, uh, oh, what is their name, um, is that the Jennifer Aniston... In that movie where they go out, like, in an RV, I can't remember what the name of it is now. He was also in Bandersnatch as the other programmer. Jack Raynor, I haven't heard of. Florence Pugh, who's done, like, Fighting With My Family and has done some other films there. She's going to be in the... She's, like, co-lead or uh, second billing in the Black Widow movie that they're making. 
uh, Laura Torsia and William Jackson Harper, which many of you will know if you follow Cable. Um, he plays Cheedy on The Good Place. Definitely a big fan of him. Wilhelm Bulgran, uh, Archie, Matt Star for a script mask. So a lot of those guys are uh, actual Swedish actors. So I posit the film is not resonating with audience or any dismal C plus cinema score. And I don't actually don't know how cinema score kind of falls into this whole ranking system. So we'll have to see here. Um, rolling out the top five are two holdovers, Horror Sequel, Annabelle Comes Home, which I haven't seen, and Disney's live-action update of Aladdin, which I also haven't seen. And second week in theaters, Annabelle Comes Home takes fourth place, has made 9.8 million ticket sales. After seven weeks in the box of Disney, Aladdin continues to be a monster success for the studio, taking fifth place, that's made 7.6 across... Um, yeah, 2,758 theaters. So still playing a lot of places, still haven't seen it yet. Probably won't see it until it comes out on video. These live actions really haven't drawn me in to see right away. Um, so yeah, so... Uh, basically gave you all the numbers there. Controlling out for Midsommar, you have Secret Life of Pets 2, Men in Black International, Avengers Endgame, which is still holding strong many, many weeks after it's been out, as well as Rocketman. So, that gives you kind of the box of us rundown, um... But with that, we'll go to some of the articles I pulled up regarding uh, Trump's big wet 4th of July, which is actually a title of this Common Dreams article, which I believe is an editorial photo by the nation's annual portrait. So, on March 12th, 1938, the uh, vaunted German army was to make German entry into the Austria, the infamous Anschluss. Oh, what is this? Um, sorry, some of these articles I kind of pulled, I kind of... Probably did the thing I shouldn't do. It's been kind of a crazy couple days. So I kind of pulled articles based on uh, quick skimming in the title. But it seems like some of this stuff is a little odd. So bear with me as I run through this. So a grand parade of the Third Reich might be was scheduled for the Austrian capital, Vienna. But the army's tanks were not as invincible as the generals bragged. Quickly broke down, clogged the roads, stalled the advance, and infuriating Adolf Hitler. So French author and filmmaker Eric Vouillard writes in his eloquent essay, The Order of the Day, the German troops loaded as many tanks as they could onto railroad cars. The trains hauled away the armor the way you transport circus equipment. The tanks arrived in Vienna and the parade went on as planned. It was that image of mass weapons as circular circus gear that flashed to mind this week when photos were released of tanks on railroad cars in Washington, D.C. ready to be placed on display at our National Mall on the orders of Donald Trump. They were part of his plan to hijack the 4th of July and make our nation's birthday all about him. A salute to America featuring the tanks, military flyovers including the Blue Angels and Air Force One, a speech made by the man who calls himself your favorite president, me. The White House, the, Nas the Republican National Committee, and the Trump re-elect distributed VIP tickets. As for the New York Times, Pentagon officials have long been reluctant to parade tanks, missiles, and other weapons throughout the nation's capital like the authoritarian leaders of North Korea and China. This is the United States, which has the largest and most powerful military and spends more on defense than the... Seven next largest military spenders combined, China, Saudi Arabia, India, France, Russia, Britain, and Germany, does not need to broadcast its strength. Many former military weren't crazed by that either. Retired Army Lieutenant General David Barno, who commanded troops under George W. Bush, told Politico, this is becoming much more of a Republican Party event, a political event, about the president than a national celebration of the 4th of July. And it's unfortunate to have the military smack dab in the middle of that, retired Army Major General William Nash added. The president using the armed forces in a political ploy for his re-election campaign, and I think it's absolutely obscene. Mother Jones reported on Wednesday that soldiers assigned to the tanks and other armored vehicles plopped down among other our national minds have been given a card with the Pentagon about what to say to the public, including, I am proud of my job and my vehicle slash tank. I'm glad to share my experience with the American people. 
And who's ever spent a 4th of July in Washington knows that it's festive fun day in the Capitol. Albeit wilting hot and sopping humid, usually above politics featuring a parade, folk-like festival, grand music, and fireworks. But this year, the steps of the Lincoln Memorial usually a prime vantage point for watching the sky rockets and the surrounding parkland were cordoned off for the invited guests so they could watch our egomaniacal president and the first lady make a grand entrance across a red carpeted stage at a spot where Marion Anderson sang My Country Tis of Thee when she was barred from the Constitution Hall by the DAR in 1939. And Martin Luther King Jr. told a Negro crowd in 1963 of his dream for racial harmony and freedom. Trump's attempts to wedge himself and re- his re-election campaign, well, his re-election into the festivities using, in part, taxpayer millions diverted from much-needed repairs of the national parks, had the grace of that clown who tries to photobomb a group of group portrait in the high school yearbook making faces and wiggling fingers in his ears. The speech, which many feared would be partisan attack, some of the reins delivered at his campaign rallies, turned out to be standard if dull rhetoric that sounded more like a third-place winning essay in the 8th grade civics contest than a speech by our putative chief executive. It went on at such monotonous length that CNN actually cut away from the commercial break, be- a cutaway for a commercial break, something I've never in my life seen happen during a presidential address. Standing behind a wall of bulletproof glass so rain-streaked it could appear he was speaking from behind a car windshield during a cloudburst, Trump was at his best when quoting the eloquence of his predecessors rather than the boilerplate of his speechwriters. Lincoln's government of the people, by the people, for the people is trundled out. But there's no mention of Abe's malice toward none. He lumbered through a rambling litany of moments in American history and named its greats glossing over our sins, thanking all the branches of the military and presenting notables in the audience who had been brought there. Say the Union style to be lauded for their achievements. One of them, Clarence Henderson, introduced by the president as among the first to participate in the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins in 1960, incited by Trump as an exemplar of the success of civil rights, has in recent years been an outspoken Trump supporter and president of the North Carolina chapter of the Frederick Douglass Foundation, a group that seeks, according to the Fayetteville Observer, to grow the ranks of conservative Christian black Republicans. Aside from the verbal slips, he inevitably stumbled into when reading from a teleprompter, ramparts slash airports, there was no groaner of an improvised joke or insult, although given his draft record, the call for young people to join the military was a little rich. That this failure to further embarrass the nation was caused for kudos from American leaders and some of the media gives an idea of how low we've let this man to the presidential performance bar. But as certain colonist Jennifer Rubin noted in the Washington Post, Trump misconstrues American traditions. What should be a commendrum of human rights, all men, and the unwavering faith in the rule of law and in democratic governance in Trump's hands becomes a caffeinated armed services day. He managed to transform a holiday about the greatest experiment in civilian self-government into a garish military Mardi Gras. So why spend even a moment wringing hands over such an event when there are horrors portrayed by this regime on an hourly basis that far eclipses some uninspiring oratory and slibshod pageantry? But Trump perpetually lies, makes policy mayhem worldwide, utters dark threats about the homeless and deportation, allows men, women, and children to cluster in overcrowded, squalid cells along our southern border. Why bother? Because as Eric Vloyd writes in the World War II, in the order of the day, great catastrophes often creep up on us in tiny steps. Because on the same day a company donated $750,000 worth of free fireworks for Trump's 4th of July party, he dropped a tariff on importing Chinese fireworks the same company had been lobbying against. Because every bit of graft like that, every small indignity inflicted, each gesture and symbol of disdain are reflective of a greater, potentially fatal insult to democracy and a degradation of the greater good that was idolized by the men who signed the Declaration. Because Voyard warns, we never fall into the same abyss, but we always fall the same way, in a mixture of ridicule and dread. And that was Michael Winship, uh, 
Senior Writing Fellow for Common Dreams. So definitely uh, powerful words, and I think that's definitely worth dreaming. Obviously, it is biased in a sense, so take that with it what you will. That was just one man's opinion. Let's go to what um, the rest of these are more the same, but always worth hearing what other people think. This is from the Rolling Stone. This is Russian State TV laughs at Trump's 4th of July parade. Commenters call the celebration weak and low energy. I don't tell Trump said that. That's what he called Jeb Bush. A Russian state TV news program laughed at President Donald Trump's 4th of July parade this week, according to the Washington Post. The host of Russia's one 60-minute program ridiculed everything about Trump's A Salute to America military extravaganza. One of the hosts, Yevgeny Pulpov, chided the president, saying sarcastically, the greatest parade of all time is going to be held today in Washington. This is what our Donald Trump has said. Pulpov wrote to Trump, saying the American president announced he, uh, he would show us the newest tanks, but... These are Abrams and Sherman tanks used during World War II and withdrawn from service in 1957. Co-host Olga Skabevia joined in the mock fest saying, The paint on those vehicles is peeling off. There are no cannons and their optics have been glued on with adhesive tape. Skabevia tweeted footage of the tanks being towed and added laughing emojis while writing Putin's America. A business editor flagged a tweet from Russian media analyst Julia Davis, who was the broadcast bash Trump's Lutomaker speech calling him weak and low energy, nickname that Trump used to chide Jeb Bush during the 2016 Republican primaries. Davis also wrote that the commentators laughed at Trump's ignorance when during the speech he said the American troops in the Revolution War took over airports. Nothing is discussed on Russia's news program without being green-lighted by Vladimir Putin. The type of mockery from what Trump likely considered a personal ally might surprise the president and his supporters. The lesson from Russia's meddling in the 2016 election wasn't that Russia was in lockstep with Trump or his messaging. It was about sowing seeds of discontent within the American electorate. The calculation to go after Trump in this case may be more about continuing the tact. It wasn't, it truly wasn't a free Russian press comically riffing at the president's expense. Of that, we can be sure. So definitely some good points there. Just more of the same, it seems. Uh, here's a post from the Washington Monthly that Trump ruins everything he touches, even the 4th of July. It's really hard for a U.S. president to mess up a celebrating America's Independence Day. You don't need to be a Bill Pullman. You certainly don't need to be festooned with pomp. Make make it about the day, not about you. All the president to do is let people cheer for the country. It'll show up a few places, say a few dignified words, and let the nonpartisan good feelings of the day warm people. Smile, wave, and let John Philip Sousa do most of the work. Unfortunately, among the many personality effects Donald Trump are a gauging mob insecurity and mind-boggling mountains of narcissism. He cannot help but try to make everything about him. It's no surprise that he would want to vaingloriously co-opt and corrupt any last vestige of patriotic and communal norms in the service of his own ego. Trump wanted to recreate the solemn charm and pageantry of the French Bastille Day ceremony and said he ended up making a mockery of both himself and the country. It was a monumental catastrophe. His planned show of armored might was nothing more than a sad set of tanks on truck beds. He bungled his own speech by claiming Revolutionary War soldiers took over airports giving a performance so flat it was obvious that he didn't write a word of it or practice its delivery, not to mention attendance was very poor, as his, even his own officials feared it would be. The weather itself seemed to be actively working against him. It rained throughout the day, and several areas by the National Mall had to be cleared due to the threat of lightning. Even when the rain dispersed at night, the winds were so calm that the much touted fire display was obscured from the view by a thick cloud of smoke that covered Washington. It was a pageant of embarrassment, and the cost of the event itself has become something of a minor scandal. As millions of dollars in park service funds were diverted to stage the event, even as special access and tickets were given to the Republican National Committee members and top GOP donors. 
All of it was an unforced error. Trump didn't need to insert himself into the 4th of July and trigger a cascade of failures. He actually chose to do so despite repeated warnings from both the military and members of his own administration. Of course, I exaggerate the impact somewhat. Of all the horrors and transgressions of this president, the 4th of July brouhaha will end up as just a minor footnote. But it's also deeply symbolic of everything Trump and his presidency represents. Trump ruins everything he touches. He has ruined countless lives in his real estate career. He's stiffed hundreds of contractors. He somehow managed to bankrupt himself in the casino business. Then sick his lenders with this with the bill. He's one of Trump University students in a knowing scam. He allegedly assaulted more than a dozen women who have credibly accused him of such, and likely many more. He sent his own fixer to prison after making him responsible for a lifetime of petty threats and blackmail against Trump's victims and enemies. Trump has also destroyed the Republican Party. It doesn't look like it from their perspective. After all, they got their tax cut and they're getting a lot of judges confirmed. He said them from a Hillary Clinton presidency, but he also exposed the GOP for having spent decades carefully disguising racist and sexist animus in the garb of economic libertarianism and social propriety. In America, this is rapidly growing less white, and where the increasingly powerful force of millennial voters wants nothing to do with this sort of bigotry, Trump has guaranteed that the GOP will, for the foreseeable future, be the party of tiki torch-waving white supremacists and Bible-thumping throwbacks of the Mad Men era. It's tragically destined for very short-term gains and catastrophic long-term defeats. Just as it was in California when Governor Pete Wilson used a similar strategy to demonize immigrants in the 1990s, ensuring the eventual collapse of the Golden State's GOP. It's as hard to ruin the 4th of July as it is to bankrupt running casinos, but Trump managed to do it. Despite his famous love of gold, Trump has a reverse Midas touch. All he comes in contact with is corrupted by him. Anyone's reflection winds up tainted. to the best thing this country can do is repudiate himself as quickly as possible. So this is uh, David Atkins, who's a writer, activist, and research professional living in Santa Barbara. He has contributed to the Washington Monthly's political animal and president of the Pollux Group, a qualitative research firm. So thank you for your words there. That was uh, another good statement here. Uh, bringing this thing along, we have... Uh, the 4th of July is... Odd. No, let's save that one. Um, here we go. How past... No, one more. This is from The Atlantic. Uh, from uh, Connor Fiedersdorf, staff writer for The Atlantic. John Adams predicted that in a 1776 letter that the nation would mark the anniversary of his independence as the most memorable epoch in the history of America. Epica? I don't know. It was a great anniversary festival that ought to be solemnized forever after with pomp and parade, shoes, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, illumination from one end of the continent to the other. That was prescient. This year's commemoration may not be the most solemn or jubilant in modern U.S. history. There's no great victory to celebrate as in 1946. No such anniversary to mark as in 1976, and nowhere near unanimity in the proper direction for the country going forward. Long after Independence Day celebrations end tonight, America's polarization will persist. But we can't separate. Husband and wife may be divorced and go out of the presence and beyond to reach, uh, to reach of each other, Abraham Lincoln observed. But a different part of our country cannot do this. They cannot but remain face-to-face and intercourse, either amicable or hostile, must continue. We have no choice but to find common ground amid disagreement we've done over and over in our history. Independence Day is the perfect occasion for doing so. In 1776, the initial July 1st vote on whether to declare independence won support from only nine of the original 13 colonies. The Pennsylvania and South Carolina delegations voted no on the questions. The New York delegation abstained and Delaware's two representatives were split. By July 4th, however, delegates impressed by the geopolitical advantages of showing greater unity had secured it with South Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Delaware all voting in favor. Even though the new nation failed to live up to its ideals 
Frederick Douglass would call the Declaration of Independence the right bolt, the ring bolt to the chain of your nation's destiny. As Asian Producer's speech, What to a Slave is the Fourth of July? The Russian began with incisive praise for the founder's best qualities. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men, too, great enough to give fame to a great age. It does not often happen to a nation to raise at one time such a number of truly great men. The point from which I am compelled to view this them is not certainly the most favorable, and yet I cannot contemplate the great deeds with less than admiration. They were statesmen, patriots, and heroes, and for the good they did and the principles they contended for, I will unite with you the honor of their memory. They loved their country better than their own private interest, and though this is not the highest form of human excellence, all will concede that it is a rare virtue that when it is exhibited, it ought to command respect. He who will intelligently lay down his life for his country is a man whom it is not in the human nature to despise. Your fathers staked their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor on the cause of their country. In their admiration of their liberty, they lost sight of all their entrance. They were peacemen, but they preferred revolution to peaceful submission to bondage. They were quiet men, but they did not shrink away from agitating against oppression. They showed forbearance, but they knew its limits. They believed in order, but not in the order of tyranny. With them, nothing was settled. That was not right. With them, justice, liberty, and humanity were final, not slavery and oppression. You may well cherish the memory of such men. These were great in their day and generation. That prelude rooted in the common ground of celebrating praiseworthy deeds and ideals made the stinging indictment that followed all the more powerful. Fellow citizens, Douglas said, Above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions, whose chains heavy and grieving yesterday are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. And he went much further. At, the time, at a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and I could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule. Blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it's not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. America got the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake, and emancipation along with an amended constitution, completed the American Revolution, much more protests and politics, but no more war. We'd be required to be perfect... Would be required to protect the Union. Those celebrating the 4th of July and Southern States Day owe a debt to the emancipated African-Americans who conserved the region's patriarch inheritance in place of whites who abandoned them in those first post-bellum years. Whereas whites expressed little interest in celebrating the 4th following the surrender of General Lee's forces, the new black freedom celebrations that took place throughout the South played a major role in assuring the independent state traditions of former times remained intact. James R. Hyant writes in the 4th of July Encyclopedia, On July 4th, 1865, in Raleigh, North Carolina, a large... African-American parade that included a brass band procession from uh, Guyan Hotel to the African Church, where those assembled heard speeches and sang songs. In Newburgh, North Carolina, on July 4, 1866, a parade hosted a Freedom Bureau wagon covered with an immense American flag. The same encyclopedia notes many other occasions across the decades with the 4th of July inspired attempts at patriotic unity amid difference. The nation's life for the Institute Centennial provides an occasion for North-South reconciliation, with Virginians raising the star-spangled banner over the state capitol, building in Richmond for the first time in 16 years. Also, that year, Representative William T. Avery declared in a Memphis, Tennessee oration, This Fourth of July is a common heritage. It belongs to the North, no South, no East, no West. On July 4th, 1890, a March 2000 Confederate veterans in Chattanooga, Tennessee, including with former Confederate General John B. Gordon, declared that slavery was wrong and that the Confederacy had been on the wrong side of the Civil War. 
1915, Frederick C. Howe, Commissioner of the Immigration at Ellis Island, essentially urged cities to host July 4th Americanization Day celebrations to welcome and honor new citizens. The Immigrants in America Review declared, if American ideals and purposes are to be fully realized, the barriers that separate the newly naturalized citizens from the native-born must be swept aside. On July 4th, 1922, Wisconsin's governor gave clemency to every man in Wisconsin prisons, incarcerated due directly or indirectly to cause born out of service to the nation. The following year, governor gave a July 4th clemency and used the occasion to express his dislike for capital punishment. Starting in 1961, even Soviet authorities sent conciliatory 4th of July messages to the United States in hopes of reducing Cold War tensions, with Nikita Khrushchev attending a 1962 celebration at the American Embassy in Moscow. After the tumult of the late 1960s and early 70s, Americans seized on the bicentennial of the Declaration as an occasion that could bring healing. They may have been riven by the events of the recent past, but could unite around the spirit of 76. A man quoted in the Washington Post, a computer specialist named Bob Pelliquin of Springfield, Massachusetts, summed up the effect in sorry, summed up the effect of bicentennial festivities on many. This has rejuvenated my faith in America, he said. After Vietnam and Watergate, people were afraid to wave the flag. Maybe with the bicentennial, people can come out of their shell and say, we've made some mistakes, but let's go on from here. The principles of the Declaration are still there to unite us, even amid the persistent divisions that define this moment. Much more so that in 1776, there is a widely held belief that all humans are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happy birthday, America. Another set of good words here. Now, um, our past presidents have celebrated the 4th of July. Throughout history, the 4th of July has been a day for some presidents to declare their independence from the public. They made tracks to the beach, the mountains, the golf course, the farm, the ranch. In the middle of the Depression, Franklin Roosevelt was sailing to a Hawaii vacation. It's also been a day for some presidents to insert themselves front and center in the fabric of it all. As John planned to do Thursday with the spe- speech-affying and showmanship, Teddy Roosevelt drew crowds in the hundreds of thousands for his oratory, and Richard Nixon enraged the anti-war masses without even showing up. In modern times, though, presidents have tended to stand back and let the people party. George W. Bush had a ceremony welcoming immigrants as new citizens. Barack Obama threw a Southland barbecue for troops. Trump's plan to command center stage with his words and American military might has the capital cleaving among political lines. As the anti-Nixon demonstration of 1970 showed, Independence Day is the capital isn't always just fun and games. as a tr- tradition of red, white, and boo, too. With Tropesters milking their presents felt Thursday, is as American as the cherries and milk that apparently soured President Zachary Taylor's gut when he wolfed them down July 4th, 1850, and died five days later. A look at what some presidents have done on the 4th of July. 1777, on the first anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, with the Revolutionary War underway, Future President John Adams described a day and night of spontaneous celebration in Philadelphia, a letter to his wife, Abigail. After hours of parading troops, fireworks, bonfires, and musics, he tells her he strolled alone in the dark. I was walking about the streets for a little fresh air and exercise, he writes. I was surprised to find the whole city lighting up their candles at the windows. I walked most of the evening. I think it was the most splendid illumination I ever saw. A few surly houses were dark, but the lights were very universal. Considering the lateness of the design and the suddenness of the execution, I was amazed by the, at the universal joy and alacrity that was discovered and the brilliancy and splendor of every part of this joyful exhibition. In 1791, two years after becoming the first president, George Washington celebrated in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with an audience with an address, fine cuisine, and walking about town. 
since the National Park Service. Philadelphia was the interim capital, and Washington D was being readied. Lancaster was host of the Continental Congress for a quick on-the-run session during the Revolution. In 1798, now President John Adams reviews a military parade in Philadelphia as the young nation flexes its muscles. In 1801, Thomas Jefferson presides over the first Fourth of July public reception at the White House. In 1822, James Monroe hangs out at his farm in Virginia. In 1826, Adams, the second president, and Jefferson, the third, both die on this July 4th. In 1831, James Monroe, who was the fifth president, dies on this July 4th. In 1848, James Polk witnessed the laying of the cornerstone of the Washington Monument with Abraham Lincoln, then an Illinois congressman, attending. A military parade follows. In 1850, Taylor attends the cities at the grounds of the Washington Monument and falls ill with stomach cramps after eating cherries and drinking iced milk and water. He dies July 9th. The theory that someone poisoned him with arsenic was debunked in 1991 when his body was exhumed and tested. Now, that is something I actually didn't know. I didn't realize they actually did exhume the body of uh, the former president to see if he actually was poisoned. I don't know how... 150 years later, that being viable still, but stranger things have happened. So in 1861, Abraham Lincoln sent a message to Congress defending his invocation of war powers, appealing for more troops to fight the South and assailing Virginia for allowing this giant insurrection to make its nest within our borders. He vows to go forward without fear. Post-war, Andrew Johnson executes a proclamation granting amnesty to those who fought for the Confederacy. And I know too, Teddy Roosevelt speaks 200,000 people in Pittsburgh. He liked to get in people's faces on the holiday. 1914, our country, right or wrong, Woodrow Wilson declared at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. 1928, Calvin Coolidge, born July 4th, 1872, goes trout fishing in Wisconsin. Not that exciting. In 1930, Herbert Hoover vacations by the Rapidian River in Virginia. 1934, Franklin Roosevelt is, is in or near the Bahamas after leaving Annapolis, Maryland on a month-long voyage and visit to Hawaii via the Panama Canal. On July 4th, the USS Houston's log refers to the fishing party leaving the ship for the party of the day. In 1946, with World War II over the year before, Harry Truman relaxes in Maryland's Catechitan Mountains at Roosevelt's Shangri-La Retreat, later renamed Camp David. In 1951, with the U.S. at war in Korea, Truman addresses a huge crowd at the Washington Monument grounds, marking the 175th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. In 1953 and 1957, Dwight Eisenhower was golfing. In 1968, Lyndon Johnson, who favored his Texas ranch on the holiday, speaks in San Antonio about the lack of independence for the poor minorities, the ill people who must breathe polluted air, and those who live in fear of crime, despite our 4th of July rhetoric. In 1970, Nixon, in California, tapes a message that is played to crowds on the National Mall at an Honor America Day celebration organized by supporters and hotly protested by an anti-war mass and civil rights activists. Tear gas overcomes protesters and celebrants alike. Viet Cong flags mingle within the stars and stripes, and demonstrators plunge into the reflecting pool, some naked. Wow. 1970. of the U.S. turns 200. Gerald Ford speaks at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, then Independence Hall, and reviews the armada of tall ships in New York Harbor. 1987, Ronald Reagan at Camp David makes a straight political statement in his July 4th radio address pitching an economic bill of rights on Robert Bork for the Supreme Court. On a Saturday, it served as his weekly radio address, which he and other modern presidents used for their agendas. 2008, big jump there, Bush, like several presidents before him, hosts a naturalization ceremony. More than 70 people from 30 countries are embraced as new citizens. In 2010, Barack Obama brings 1,200 service members to the South Lawn for a barbecue. The father of a July 4th baby... Um, Malia, he would joke that she always thought the Capitol fireworks were for her. 
2012, Obama combines two for the Jedi tradition, celebrating troops and new citizens by honoring the naturalization of U.S. military members who came to the country as immigrants. In 2017, Trump got his golf club, then hosts a White House picnic for military families. Reasonable. 2018, another White House picnic for military families with thousands also invited to see the fireworks. Also nice. And then, obviously, this year was the um, the parade. But the flowchart hasn't has always been political, and the question in which vision of America is being used to advance. This is an article from The Atlantic, and this is... Is President Donald Trump politicizing the 4th of July, allowing the crasses of partisanship to intrude on civic, on a sacred civic celebration? That widely posed question is built on a faulty premise. From the very beginning, Independence Day celebrations have always been deeply political. In fact, the early celebrations were far more overtly political than today's festivities. The right question is into whether July 4th is being politicized, Rather, which vision of American citizenship is being used to advance? In July of 1776, American rebels staged celebrations of independence that were at once spontaneous and also, in a strikingly modern sense, media events. Independence has always been in the air for at least a year. The Continental Congress had already created public holidays, declaring two national days of fasting on July 20th, 1775 and May 17th, 1776. Yet when it forwarded the printed Declaration of Independence to the states, Congress not recommend fasting, prayer, bell ringing, or any other observance. Congress not order the nation to celebrate its own birth. Instead, many colonists devised their own celebrations to mark the event. Declaration had thrust all blame onto the king, and its public proclamation set off public symbolic murders and funerals for the king. In versions of the king's birthday celebrations, people in New York City tore down the equestrian statue of George III and hacked it to pieces. They said the metal bits of it were later used to make bullets. Ironic. Uh, in other places, the monarch's picture and royal arms were ceremoniously burned. In Savannah, Georgia, George III was interred before the courthouse. The press descriptions made sure to mention the ringing of bells and the bonfires of two most important aspects of traditional king's birthday celebrations. These printed descriptions inspired new celebrations and stressed the loud and visible support of the people for the end of monarchy and, and the beginning of American independence under new forms of government. The celebration descriptions they inspired made it seem possible that 13 North American colonies, which until that time had more connections with England than with any with one another, might unite to form a new nation. In Huntington's Long Island, people took down the old Liberty Pole and used the material to fashion an effigy. This mock king sported a wooden broadsword and was described in newspapers as having a blackened face like Dunmore's Virginia Regiment, the slave people who had been invited by the governor of Virginia to help put down the rebellion. And feathers like Carlton and Johnson Savages, the King's Iroquois allies in New York. Fully identified with his African and Indian allies wrapped in the Union Jack, the King was hanged, exploded, and burned. Nation-building facilities in 1786 targeted a, a revealing array of enemies, parts that is seemingly depoliticized 4th of July that has helped us forget. During the difficult years of the Revolutionary War, patriots began to celebrate the anniversary of America's independence on July 4th. They also marked battle victories and their anniversaries. These patriots focused on what unified them and on the glorious national furniture, or not furniture, national future they expected would follow from their victories, rather than the British past that they had once actively remembered on such occasions. The revolutionary movement's need to simultaneously practice politics and create national unity only raised the stakes of celebrating national holidays. The trend in the early republic would be for July 4th and other celebrations modeled on the 4th to spread nationalism and at the same time to provide 
venues for divisive political expansion in the way Americans learned both to be American and to practice partisanship without any sense of contradiction. Just as they blamed the British and their native and African allies while drawing on British traditions, they used the 4th of July to praise and criticize their government and one another, in the process struggling over who and what was truly American. In 1787 and 1788, proponents of the new federal constitution staged supposedly spontaneous celebrations of ratification of the various states, not only to express their relief, but also to attack their opponents, and to try to convince doubters that the new national charter would inevitably be accepted by all the states. During the 1790s, with disputes over foreign affairs and the role of public opinion between elections, led Federalists and Democratic Republicans to begin to coalesce into informal national political parties. These partisans began to hold separate Fourth of July celebrations in larger towns. Those of the Fourth and is now more fully developed repertoire of parades, sermons, toasts, and newspaper reportage as a model for new celebrations with explicit political meanings. Federalists began to celebrate Washington's birthday in order to support Washington's policies and to confirm their claims to embody the nation. For a time, Democratic Republicans marked anniversaries of the French Revolution, which they felt expressed the more democratic version of politics they sought to turn into American tradition. After 1800, they also celebrated March 4th, the anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's inauguration as president, as an alternative to what they called the monarchial traditions of Washington's birthday. Such celebrations helped Americans put into practice a two-party system which would justify on its which few justified on its own terms, but which, along with the newspaper that were increasingly subsidized by parties, provided an orderly meeting ground between unwieldy federal electoral politics and the tradition of popular rituals. July 4th and its alternates enabled Americans to preserve the paradox of revolutionary tradition. While these nationalistic political celebrations often came to have a conservative bent after the revolutionary era, some of the abolitionists used the occasion to criticize American policy shut out of the two-party system by politicians who refused to address the issue of slavery on a national level. Anti-slavery activists invented alternative festivals such as the celebrations of the end of the slave trade. When Frederick Douglass asked, what to the slaves is the 4th of July? And answer, the 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. It did so at an alternative 5th of July celebration held in Rochester, New York in 1852. Douglasson continued the American penchant for not only celebrating, but also inventing new holidays when the political possibilities of old ones seemed insufficient. On this 4th of July, we may be asking whether this president's celebration in which flyovers and tanks tell us the military service is the epitome of public service is the right one. We may be asking with Nike and... Colin Kaepernick whether we can see more in Betsy Ross's flag than a pro-savory emblem. emblem sorry. But on the, any 4th of July, the real question is whether is what version of the Republic we care to advance by celebrating. Well, it's actually a good point. I never actually kind of looked at it that way that it's all about the context of what we're celebrating. What version, as it says, of the Republic we care to advance by celebrating. What are we pushing forth? What are we what are we moving towards? And I think it's a good way to leave this episode. It gives you kind of a sense of, like it is, there's always two sides to every story. There's always two perspectives you can see something from, and multiple perspectives, really. But you got to decide kind of what we're, what we're trying to achieve. What are we moving forward as a nation? We've been a country for many years, and all versions of this must come to an end at some point. Are we moving toward to a country that can exist in its form for Many years, decades, centuries even. Or does something have to fall for a new thing to form? We really don't know where the rest of this is going to take us. 
But that is not my choice to decide for you. That's something you have to do from your research, from your looking into this, just to figure out what nation you want us to have. And it seems that there are certain dark moments that we have, but we're citizens of these United States, and we have to be united if we ever want to see a future here. And deepening divides by partisan politics and just by finding other means to divide us, whether it's simple laws other things that have just come to divide us as a country. I think we just need to figure out what's important and just find our place to, to kind of to stand and move forward. Others are just going to just fight in the weeds and be doomed to repeat a lot of these tragedies and difficulties of our past. But before I start to ramble, this has been Poor360 for this week. I have some more episodes that I'll be rolling out over the next few days that you can access by going to... Oh man, I'm just totally spacing out. Um, wow, I can totally, I'm totally blanking on Patreon. I don't know why, I totally forgot the word Patreon. It's been a hell of an evening, uh, I appreciate everyone, but like I said, yes. For early access to those episodes that I'm going to be rolling out, definitely check out patreon.com backslash journey into comics to have access to those. For simply a dollar a month, we can, you can access that, and if you have thoughts, questions, feedback, anything I can do for the show, feel free to reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'll do my best to post about these. I've been really bad about that. I've been bad about this whole show, keeping it public, but I think I'd work to do more, and that's all I can say. And that's been episode 26 for Poor360 for this week. I am Andrew Poor. You guys have a great, great week. And God bless America. You've been listening to Poor360. You can find us on the socials at Poor360 on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us and all the other podcasts on our network at journeyintocomics.com or early access at patreon.com slash journeyintocomics. You can find us on all podcasting platforms like CastBox, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and many others.